0: Well, this weekend, this Sunday, uh, marks the beginning of what is something that is traditionally and historically referred to as Holy Week. And uh, if you're not sure what Holy Week is, or if you kind of didn't grow up in a church setting, uh, Holy Week actually refers to the historical events that led up to Jesus's crucifixion and his resurrection. So it's the, it's the, it's the events that happened the week before leading up to uh, Jesus' crucifixion. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, uh, which marks the end of Holy Week, which is what we'll be celebrating next week. And uh, so all throughout the world, all over the globe, uh, there are many, many, many people who are getting ready to commemorate and to remember uh, the events of this week, to remember the crucifixion and remember the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it seems like in in, in the world, and especially in our society, that this week in particular, that Jesus really rides kind of to the front of our thinking, that he kind of rides to the front of our minds. And so whether you're a religious person or whether you're not a religious person, whether you're a church person or not, for many of us this week, kind of whether you like it or not, we're going to be confronted with Jesus. We're going to be presented with the crucified Christ. And uh, you see this all over the place, right? So you don't just see it in churches, but if you are going through your Amazon Prime, you know, movie feed, looking for something to watch, or if you're looking through Netflix, you'll notice that this time year, there tends to be an increased amount of documentaries that are released about Jesus and about his crucifixion and the events that kind of surrounded that. You'll notice if you read your newsfeed or if you read magazines that there are articles, there's an increased amount of articles that tend to come out this time of year about Jesus and about who he was and what his life was about and some of the things surrounding that and especially around the events of his crucifixion. And so for many of us, there is an increased awareness There is an increased kind of exposure to the person of Jesus. So all throughout the world, people are really kind of thinking about Christ. And in particular, they're thinking about his his crucifixion. And so it's probably no surprise to you then that here at the Medina East Campus today, as we kind of begin this march towards Easter in this coming week, that we're going to spend some time ourselves today really thinking about and processing through and talking about the crucifixion the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's what I know as it relates to this topic, the topic of the cross. What I know is that every single one of us in this room and really every person in our society and probably just about every person in the world knows that Jesus was crucified. That's one thing that we all know. We, know, Whether you're you know, a follower of Jesus, whether you're not a follower of Jesus, whether you're religious or you're not religious, one thing we all know is that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. This is actually one of the most established historical facts in all of human history, that Jesus Christ died on a cross. There's almost no dispute behind that. And There's a lot of things about Jesus, we all know, that are very controversial. And there are a lot of disagreements about who Jesus was and about what he taught in the meaning of. His- his teaching was, about who he claimed to be, who he thought he was, about the meaning of his life and the meaning of his death. But the one thing that almost no one argues with is the fact that Jesus Christ died on a cross. And so we all know that it happened. But the reason I want to take some time to talk about it here today is because I think that even though many of us know that Jesus was crucified, sometimes it's easy for us to lose sight of the meaning of the crucifixion. What does it mean? that Jesus died on the cross. Not just that it happened, but what is the significance behind the crucifixion? Because here's what I believe, is that for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know that not everyone here today follows Jesus, some of you might be in the process of investigating Christianity and investigating the life of Christ, but for those of us who follow Christ, we believe that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is not just some stale historical fact that has no bearing on our real lives today. We think that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has far-reaching implications that are intended to, to transform and animate the way that we live our lives today. That it's not just some cold textbook historical fact of something that happened to some guy 2,000 years ago, but that it continues to impact and change things in real life and in society today. And so what is the meaning of the cross? That's what we want to think about together in our time that we have. Now, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that as it relates to this topic, that there is more to say about the meaning of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ uh, then there are sermons that I can preach an entire lifetime. I think this is an inexhaustible topic, uh, the, the meaning of the cross. But for the sake of our time today, what I wanna do is I simply wanna think together and press our minds down on two things that the cross means. So what does the cross mean? Well, I wanna think about two things, two things. What does the cross mean? What does the cross say? And I believe it's these two. I think, I think the cross is gonna tell us, number one, that God can be trusted. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a profound declaration of the trustworthiness of God. And number two, I believe the cross is gonna tell us that God loves me, that God loves you, that, that, that one of the greatest declarations of God's love for you is displayed for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. So that what does the cross mean? It means a whole lot of things, but it at least means these two things, that you can trust God because God, is, God can be trusted and that God loves me. And so how does the cross tell us those things? Well, let's just think about it together. Let's start with the first one. I believe the cross tells us its declaration of the trustworthiness of God, that God can be trusted. So how, right? How does Jesus Christ hanging on a cross tell you that you can trust God? How exactly does that work? And and so that's what we want to think about here for for just a moment together. So it's interesting, uh, we we heard from Matthew chapter 27 just a moment ago, we were able to read that passage. And what's fascinating is if you ever take a look at that account of the crucifixion and you compare it with the other gospels. So some of you might not know this, but in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's actually four gospels. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are all first century historical accounts of the life of Jesus. And in all four of the gospels, gospels, they all have an account of the cross. They have an account of the events of the crucifixion. And when you look at those different gospels and you compare them to each other, so when you kind of put them next to each other, what you'll notice is that there is a striking amount of similarities between those stories. And so when you read the gospels, you will see that the events and the details of the crucifixion are, uh, are very congruent and so historically, uh, the crucifixion is very well documented, very well established. But what you'll also notice when, when you compare Matthew and the different gospels and their accounts of the crucifixion is you'll also notice that there's actually a good amount of differences. There, there's some differences. now, not contradictions, but there's some differences in the way that the gospel writers tell the story. And what I mean by that is you will notice that some gospel writers choose to focus on certain details in greater depth. And other gospel writers will summarize those same details and kind of blow past them. And the question that you have to ask when you're reading is why? why? Why does a gospel writer choose to focus on some details and like summarize other details? And I think there's a really significant reason for this. But just to show you what I'm talking about, let me just give you a couple examples of what I mean. So in Matthew, we just, we just read this, but I want you to notice something like in Matthew 27, verse 31, for instance, notice how Matthew tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion. He simply says, after they had mocked Jesus, they took off his robe, they put on his clothes on him and they led him away. And then notice this, he just simply says, and they crucified him and they, and they crucified him. And, and the reason I have this highlighted is because as it relates to the actual cross itself, Jesus's crucifixion, this is all that Matthew tells us. And it's interesting to me because um, you know I kind of, For the past several years, I've heard a ton of different sermons and messages, and maybe you have heard a lot of sermons and messages too, where they go into great detail about the gore and the violence of the cross. Or maybe you've seen movies, like maybe you watch The Passion of the Christ, and if you watch that, it goes into great detail of the gore and the violence and the gruesome nature of the cross. We actually know historically, we know that the cross, the cross was the most violent and brutal form of capital punishment that human history has ever seen. The Romans were specialists in torture. And I've heard sermons, and, and you have too, and I've seen movies, and you probably have seen them too, where they just go into great depth of the agony that Jesus would have faced on the cross, right? They talk about like how they would have pierced Jesus's hands and feet and precisely where those piercings would take place. They talk about what the cross itself would have been like, the rugged nature of it. They would have explained how, how, how torturous it would have been, how gruesome it would have been. They talk about how most likely Jesus would have died by asphyxiation on the cross because most people who are crucified, they tried to prolong your torture as long as humanly possible so that eventually you would die of asphyxiation, not being able to, to raise yourself to breathe. And I've heard sermons like that and I've seen movies like that. But what's really fascinating is that the gospel writers never go into detail about the crucifixion and never go into the gruesome detail of the blood and guts. They simply say things like they crucified him they crucified him. And what's even more interesting to me is not just that Matthew doesn't elaborate on the details of the crucifixion. What's even more interesting to me is the details that he chooses to elaborate on. It's really weird if you think about it. So like, for example, look at this. The Bible says, Matthew tells us that after they had crucified Jesus, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So how interesting is that? Here you have the son of God hanging on a cross, like the most extreme form of execution, and Matthew decides that he's going to zoom in on an event that was taking place at the foot of the cross, that there was these men who were apparently gambling for Jesus's clothing. It seems like a weird, odd detail to focus on in the midst of this scene. Or what about this detail? Uh, Matthew tells us that immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine and vinegar, and he put it on a staff, and he offered it to Jesus to drink. Why all this detail about a stick with wine and vinegar and a sponge because Jesus was thirsty. It just—it seems like like the question you have to ask when you're reading the Gospels is, why, why does the Gospel writer zoom in on some details, and why does he summarize other details? And like I said, I think there's a really significant reason why. So one of the things you have to remember when you're reading the Bible, and specifically when you're reading the Gospels, is that the authors of those gospels were writing to specific audiences. And so the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like I said, they all are giving a first century eyewitness kind of historical account of the life of Jesus. But what's interesting is all four of them are writing to different audiences. And so Matthew, and if you've been with us in this series, you might remember Matthew, the guy who's writing the gospel of Matthew, He's a Jewish man and he is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. That's who he would be writing to, would be to a predominantly Jewish audience. And I am convinced, I am convinced that the reason that Matthew decides to zoom in on certain details and summarize other ones is because he's trying to communicate to his audience, not just that the the crucifixion happened, but I believe he's trying to communicate to them the significance behind the crucifixion. The details that he includes and that he focuses on would have been very important to his audience. And some of you are like, well, well, what what does it mean? What is he trying to tell? Well, I I think that the key to understanding what Matthew is trying to communicate to his audience about the crucifixion is actually found in verse 46. And so let me, let me show you what verse 46 says. Some of you have heard that maybe one of the f- most famous things Jesus said from the cross. This is about three in the afternoon. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, fascinatingly enough, uh, in the gospel of Matthew, if, uh, some of you have uh, different Bibles out there. And you might, you might maybe you have a red letter Bible. Does anyone know what a red letter Bible is? So a red letter Bible is basically a Bible where the things that Jesus said are in red letters. And if you have a red letter Bible, you will notice something really interesting about Matthew 27. And that is that when Jesus is on the, is on the cross, this is the only thing that Matthew points out that Jesus said. So the words on the cross, Matthew only highlights this one thing that Christ said from the cross. Now, what's really interesting is we all know Jesus said a whole lot more than just this when he was on the cross. We know that from other historical accounts. And so we know, for example, that when Jesus was on the cross, he would have said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We know that when Jesus was on the cross, he would have had a conversation uh, with a criminal who was crucified next to him. We would have known that. He would have said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, Jesus, we know that when he was on the cross, he would have cried out, it is finished at the end of the cross. But Matthew leaves out all of those details, and he simply tells us this one thing that Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, that verse, by the way, this one, can be very troublesome to, uh, to the Bible reader. And the reason is because when we read it, we tend to think that it looks like God has forsaken Jesus it appears like Jesus is admitting defeat. It appears like Jesus is basically saying, I've been abandoned by God and the whole thing is a sham. And there's been some people who have understood it that way. But what I want you to understand is that to interpret that, that phrase in that way as Jesus's utterance of defeat is actually to misunderstand um, Matthew's audience. And I think it's to misunderstand what Matthew is trying to communicate to his audience. And what is it that Matthew is trying to communicate? Well, I think it's important to say, some of you probably know this if you have footnotes in your Bible, when Jesus is on the cross and he shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's important to notice that he's actually quoting uh, from a passage in the Old Testament. That's what he's quoting from. And some of you maybe know this. He's actually quoting not just from any passage, he's actually quoting from Psalms. And not just from Psalms, he's quoting from Psalm 22, verse one. And here's why that's really significant. So remember, remember the audience is a Jewish audience. Back in this time, man, the Jewish people, they were very, very, very well-versed in the Old Testament, very well-versed, right? Not only was it their holy book that they based their faith on, uh, this would be the book that they would use to educate their children. So if you were a Jewish family and you were teaching your kids how to read and write, the way you would do that is by way of the Old Testament. So everyone was real familiar with the Old Testament. And what's more than that is back in this time, back in Jesus' time, there was not chapters and verses. So you know how today in your Bible, you have chapters and verses. So we say, hey, turn to Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Well, chapters and verses were a much later addition. That didn't come until more modern times. So back in this time, how did they refer to the different Psalms? Well, they wouldn't say Psalm 22. So how did they refer to the Psalms? Well, here's how they would do it. They would refer to the entirety of the Psalm by stating the first line of the Psalm. That's how they would do it. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, uh, let me give you kind of a modern day way that this ha- We actually still do this in some ways. So think about like nursery rhymes, for example. So when I say um, hickory dickory dock, right? Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a, a nursery rhyme. It's the first line, but it, it, it actually kind of represents the whole thing. Or if I say, Mary had a little lamb right? You know what I'm talking about. So if we were out in the cafe for, and for whatever reason, I was to ask you, hey, have you ever heard Mary had a little lamb? Which I don't know any circumstance that I would ever ask you that question. But if I did, like if I just said, hey, did you, did you, have you ever heard Mary had a little lamb? You wouldn't be like, I don't know, Mary, and I don't know about a lamb. Like you would, you would know what I mean. You would mean that I'm referring to an entire nursery rhyme and not just the first line, but the whole thing. And so I want you to understand that's exactly how it would have worked in the Psalms. And so Matthew wants us to know that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, that, the, that one of the things that he would have shouted out is he basically would have said to, to those who were there, he would have said, Psalm 22. And by, and by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't simply referring to the first line of the Psalm. He would have been referring to the entirety of the Psalm. It basically was like a hyperlink. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what that would have done to a Jewish audience is it would have made them do all kinds of math because they would have immediately thought back to everything that Psalm 22 says. And some of you are thinking, what does Psalm 22 say? Well, it's pretty awesome. You need to read it sometime. But let me just give you, for our sake today, a couple excerpts from Psalm 22. See if this sounds familiar. This is Psalm 22, starting off in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening line. That would be the line in which the Jewish people would have referred to the entire Psalm. My God, my God, why why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Verse six, I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they hurl insults at me. They shake their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do not be far from me, uh, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and they cast lots from my garment. Now, let me just tell you, this is halfway, about halfway through Psalm 22. And when Jesus is on the cross, he shouts out to those who were there, Psalm 22. And to an audience who would have been very well versed in the Old Testament, they would have known what Jesus meant. And why, why is it that Matthew is focusing on some of these details that happened on the cross? Well, he, he's trying to help his readers make a connection. He's trying to help us see not just that Jesus was crucified, but the deep significance and meaning behind it. It's actually really interesting. If you look at Psalm 22 and you compare it next to Matthew 27, it's unbelievable the amount of striking similarity that you'll notice So uh, Psalm 22 starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus cried out from the cross. According to the gospel of Matthew, this is the one thing that Matthew records that Jesus said on the cross. Uh, In Psalm 22, apparently this character that is being prophesied about, the Bible says, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. And then in Matthew 27, those who pass by hurled insults at Jesus, shaking their heads. And uh, in Psalm 22, you see the content of their mockery. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. You see the exact same words in Matthew 27. Psalm 22, my mouth is dried up like a pot My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Matthew 27 goes out of the way to tell us that they brought Jesus a drink because he thirsted when he was on the cross. Psalm 22, it says they pierced his hands and his feet, which is really interesting because crucifixion wasn't even a thing during this time. It didn't actually show up until about 200 BC. Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years before Jesus walked the planet. And then yet it says that Jesus was crucified. They divided up his clothes. They cast lots for his garments. We see the same thing happen in Matthew chapter 27. And what you see is you see with an odd amount of specificity that these events that you see in Matthew 27 were already foreshadowed and predetermined in, in uh, Psalm chapter 22. And what's so interesting to me is that Psalm 22 was written about 1,000 years before Jesus went to the cross. 1,000 years, I mean, that's a really long time. Think about that for a minute. America turns 243 this July. So you're talking about four times the amount of time that there's been in America is when Psalm 22 was predicting what was gonna happen on the cross. And with such an, crazy, an amazing amount of specificity, that would, be like, that would be like the Vikings, like a thousand years ago, like Leif Erikson predicting with a great amount of specificity, the iPhone, right? Like him writing down like, and if you swipe up, you can access your flashlight and <laughs> there will be a great game that shows up called Fortnite, which many young men will waste their lives playing, right? And you're like, <laughs> it's like that, And yet you see it here in this and what's even what I think is even more fascinating is how Psalm twenty two ends. Because many of us have maybe heard Psalm twenty two, but maybe a lot of people don't know how it ends. But do you know how Psalm twenty-two finishes? Do you know how it concludes? Uh, let, me, let me just show you. So Psalm 22 starts by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Apparently this character seems to have been forsaken by God. But then when you get through Psalm 22, when you near the end, you notice that it takes a totally different turn, a radically different turn. And look what it says. This is uh, verse 24 in Psalm 22. For he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So you notice what Psalm 22 does. It starts by talking about this agony and this defeat and this forsaking that this person is taking upon himself. But then it says in the middle, God has not forsaken him. And God has listened to him. And he will be vindicated. This is what happens in Psalm 22. And then look at how it ends. It says, all the ends of the earth are going to remember this. They're going to remember this. They're going to turn to the Lord. Posterity is going to serve Him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They're going to proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. You know, one of the things I love about Psalm 22 is Psalm 22 doesn't simply anticipate the events of the cross. Psalm 22 continues to be fulfilled to this day. Let's think about it for a minute. Ends of the earth, future generations people yet unborn. Let's ask you, how is this being fulfilled today? I just say, look around the room. Look around the room. You are a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Ends of the earth. We live in Medina, Ohio, or at least that's where we are right now is in Medina. I don't know where you live, but Medina, Ohio. We are on the other side of the planet from where the events has occurred. Future generations, We are 2,000 years after Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. People yet unborn. Who is that talking about? It's talking about us. All of the world is fulfilling what's happening in Psalm 22 this week. And so why is Matthew telling us this? I'll tell you why Matthew is telling this. I think one of the reasons is because he's trying to make the point that God can be trusted, that you can trust God, that when you look at the events of the cross, it may appear that God is out of control. And it might appear that Jesus has been forsaken. And it might appear that this is Christ's greatest moment of defeat. But in reality, what Matthew is telling us is no, that's not the case at all. Nothing that is happening to Jesus is outside of God's control. It's not outside of his will. God actually told us that this is what was going to take place. And so what does that communicate to us? That even when it looks like it's Jesus's greatest moment of defeat, That in actuality, what's happening is that this is God's greatest moment of victory because it was on the cross where Jesus died that he secured for us uh, victory over Satan, sin, and death, finally and fully on the cross. Everyone thought that Jesus was forsaken, but in actuality, Jesus was vindicated by God and he was exalted to the highest place as a result of that. And so what does that tell you? What does that tell me? Here's what it tells you. You can trust God. You can trust him. You can trust God. If you're in the room today And you're asking the question, can I really trust God? And maybe the circumstances of your life are telling you that God cannot be trusted, that God is out of control. Maybe the pain that you're facing, the suffering that you're facing, the diagnosis that you're enduring right now, Maybe the turbulence that you're going through in your life, the relational trials that you're facing, maybe everything in your life is saying, I can't trust God. It doesn't look like he has my best interest in mind. Can I just tell you, if you want to know, can you trust God? The one place that you can look to get a definitive answer is look to the cross. Because the cross tells us that if you trust God, if you entrust yourself to Jesus, that there's no amount of pain, there's no amount of suffering, there's no amount of turbulence that you will face in this life, there's no amount of injustice that cannot be used by God for your good and for his glory. There's nothing that's outside of his jurisdiction to be used for his glory. And the cross tells us that. And so if you ever are in a position where you're doubting God's trustworthiness, I think the cross yells loudly at us that yes, you can trust him. Even to the point of death, you can trust him. You can trust him. So the cross tells us first, God can be trusted. But then secondly, I think the cross is is a very profound declaration of God's love for us. It says, God loves me. God loves me. If you ever doubt that God loves you, I think you can just look at the cross. And the cross, by the way, it communicates God's deep love for us in so many different ways. But I think one of the clearest ways that we, ex- we can see the love of God for us displayed on the cross is the amount of humiliation that Jesus was willing to endure for our sake and for our good. You know, one, one of the things I, I, when I was listening to uh, the, the reading in Matthew 27, one of the things that I was struck with is the great humiliation that Jesus faced, the great humiliation that he endured? You know, it's, it's fascinating. Of course, we know the Bible tells us that he was beaten and um, and that he was mocked and flogged, and we know all of that, which is humiliating. But we also know Matthew seems to tell us that everybody was making fun of Jesus, that he was that he was the brunt of every joke. I just I want you to notice just just how just how. Th- how how every class of people, according to Matthew, were all mocking Christ. And so, look what it says: Matthew twenty seven thirty nine. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. So average, average people that were just watching were mocking Jesus. The same chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders also mocked him. So you had the leaders, the, 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 the chief priests, the religious people, the Roman, God, you know, the Roman leaders, government leaders, all, all criticizing Jesus. And the Bible says that even the rebels who were with him, that were crucified with him, they heaped insults on him. And what do you see? Matthew says Every, everybody, everybody is criticizing Christ. Everybody is mocking him. Every class of person is looking at him I mean, how humiliating this must have been for Christ to be the brunt of every joke. And then on top of that, he's stripped down, stripped. And yeah, for, for many of us, that, that alone is one of the most embarrassing things to think about. Stripped down and then put on a cross. Back in the society, crucifixion was by far the most shameful and the most humiliating way to die. It was so shameful and so humiliating. Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. A cru- crucifixion was reserved for the most deplorable and most despicable criminals. It was the most humiliating way to go. In fact, one, um, one uh, statesman, Roman statesman by the name of Cicero, he actually declared, he said that Romans shouldn't even have to hear the word cross That's how deplorable it was. And to the Jewish people, the cross was equally as offensive. In Deuteronomy 21, God said in the Old Testament, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And so to them, they said, he could never be the Messiah. He's hanging on a cross. He's cursed. He's cursed. And so the cross was the utter epitome of humility humiliated on the cross. I think this is why the apostle Paul said this. He said, in being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now look what he says, even death on a cross, exclamation point. And why would Paul do that? Because he's saying, if you wanna know the depths and the extent in which Jesus humiliated himself, that is fully displayed on the cross. Because the cross is the most humiliating way for a person to die. Why is that so important? Here's why I think that's so important. I think all of us know this, that the way you really know your love for somebody is how, one of the ways you know that is how much you're willing to humiliate yourself for the sake of their good. One of the ways you really know you love someone is how much you're willing to humiliate yourself for, for the sake of their good and for the sake of their freedom. Isn't that true? Now, just think about it for a minute. Think back to when you first started dating your honey, right? And and what did you do? You did embarrassing things that you would never, that your friends all made fun of you. Why? Because that's what love does. Love humiliates. If you don't believe me, think, if you have kids, think about it. Think about the humiliating things you do for your children. Just think about that. How many of you daddies let your daughters put makeup on your face? (laughs) Why? That's what love does. Love humiliates itself for the sake of the one that it cares for, for the sake of the one that it loves. And I think the cross is a profound statement of God's love for us. Why? Because look how far down Jesus came. Look at how much he was willing to endure in the way of humiliation for your good and for my good. Think about that. John Tyson, he's a, a church planter in New York City. And he tells a story about a soldier that served in Vietnam. And there's a soldier who served in Vietnam. And apparently there was a group of prisoners who had been taken hostage and they were put into uh, a prison camp. And when they were in that prison camp, they were, um, they were beaten and tortured, both uh, physically tortured and also psychologically tortured. And so what the oppressors would do is they would, they would stage various false raids where basically they would make the prisoners feel like they were being set free but it would turn out that it was just their oppressors and they were just trying to crush their hope in that situation. It was a type of psychological warfare. And so one day a group of US Marines were tagged with the operation to rescue uh, these prisoners of war. And so when the Marines broke in and they found the prisoners in this camp, they found them uh, beaten, uh, tortured. They found them stripped down naked and they were lying on the ground. Uh, kind of of just lying there, beaten and naked in this posture. And when they came in, even though the Marines were there to save them, the prisoners wouldn't trust them. They wouldn't trust the liberating force. And so one of the Marines, um, in an act of genius, in an act of compassion, knew what he needed to do. And so what he did was he took off his uniform and he stripped himself down naked. And he got down on the floor and he, lay, he laid in the fetal position with these, with these prisoners and he looked them in the eye as if to say, I'm, I'm one of you. I want you to see that I am one of you. And when they were able to see that, that this man would come to their level and that he would strip himself down and humiliate himself for their sake, they were able to trust him. And they were able to follow him into into their freedom. Now, let me just tell you, I think this is one of the greatest reasons that you can trust God. I think this is why. It's because look how far, look how far he has humiliated himself for your sake and for mine. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus is God's son that he sits at the right hand of the father, that he's the king of the universe. You know, the Bible says that all things were made by him, for him, and through him, that all authority is given to Christ. And yet look how far he's willing to humble himself for our sake. Jesus strips off everything that would cause us to fear him. He strips off all of his power. He strips off all of his authority. And I I believe he comes all the way down so that he can look us in the eye. And so that he can tell us, I see you. And when we feel like we can trust nobody else, Jesus looks at us in the eye and he says, I know you and I see you and I love you and you can trust me and you can trust me because I care for you and I will lead you to the life that I desire for you. Can I just tell you, if you're a person that's investigating Jesus here today and we say this all the time, kind of in honor if you would let us be part of your investigation but can I just tell you something that I believe with every fiber in my being? I believe that Jesus is alive and I believe that he, he sees you and he knows you. I believe that you're fearfully and wonderfully made by him and I believe that he sees you. And you know what else I think that means? I believe, I believe that Jesus sees everything about you. I believe he sees your shame and he sees your guilt. I believe that Jesus sees the most embarrassing and most humiliating things about yourself, the things that you wish nobody else would ever find out about you. I want you to just think about this for a minute. Think about the most humiliating, shameful thing, shameful event, shameful habit shameful situation in your life. I want you to think about that for a minute. What is the thing that you are the most humiliated about, that you're the most ashamed, you have the most regret? What is the the habit or addiction that if someone found out about you today, that they would move to a different aisle and sit next to somebody else? What is that? And can I just tell you, Jesus sees that. He sees it. He knows that. He, He knows And rather than condemning you and and rather than humiliating you and rather than exposing you, you know what Jesus chooses to do? He chooses to humiliate himself so that you can go free. And you want to know how much he loves you? You look at the cross. You look at the cross. It's going to tell you the extent in which he has come to set you free. Jesus sees you to the bottom and he loves you to the skies and the cross the cross is the most profound declaration of the extent in which he loves you and man I'm telling you I think I think that these two things right here are the two things that we have the hardest time believing in this life you can trust god and he loves you but man that we might get a hold of that And I'm just saying, if you ever find yourself in a spot where you're doubting either one of these things, can I trust God and does he love me? I think there's one place you can always look back to where you are gonna find the answer to that question and it's the cross. Because on the cross, you see the fullness of both of these things, that God is in control and you can trust him and that he loves you, that he loves you, he loves you. I'm just saying for some of you, I know you're hearing this today and you might be thinking, man, but this is great. Sounds too good to be true. This sounds too good to be true. And can I just say I understand that? Because unfortunately for so many of us in our lives there's been too many false raids. There have been too many competing voices that we have heard in our society that overpromise and underdeliver. There have been so many voices that we've heard that say, this is the path to freedom. This is the path to fulfillment. This is the pathway to success. And we've given our lives to those things and we've pursued those things. And it's only left us with greater emptiness and with greater purposelessness and with greater hunger and greater thirst. But Jesus looks and says, you can trust me. Why? Because I have humbled myself for you and I've sacrificed myself for you. And I do so that you might have life. Ask the band to come up and as they do, I wanna, I wanna end with one kind of practical encouragement and one kind of practical uh, challenge for all of us in this room. And that's this. Uh, I would encourage you, I mean, first off, if you're a person who's investigating Jesus, I would just say, man, if you've never given your heart over to him, if you've never given your life over to him, I think the cross is, is proof to you that you can because you can trust him with your life and you can trust him that he loves you and you could trust those things. And I would encourage you, if you've never turned to Christ, maybe you do that here this morning. But my other encouragement, very practical is this, is I would encourage you, don't let this week go by. I know that a lot of you are busy this week and you're looking forward to Easter and you got family things to prepare for. And there's, you know, hams to buy and there's eggs to hide. And there's, you know, kids to give more sugar to. And there's all that kind of, and that's all fun. That's fine. It's fun. But I would say in the midst of the, of the busyness of preparing for Easter, don't let this week go by without creating some space to really press your heart down on the meaning that Jesus died for you, the crucifixion. You know, it's it's interesting to me that in the Bible, um, you know, the Bible never commands followers of Jesus to remember the birth of Jesus. You don't ever see like the Bible never says like, and you shall put a manger in your front yard, and you know, and you you must say Merry Christmas to everybody that you see. It never says that. Now that's a good thing, it's a great thing, but it never says that. But do you know that Jesus Christ Himself commanded that if for those of us who follow Him, that we remember the cross, that we actually deliberately remember what he's done for us. Not just remember that it happened, but remember the significance behind it. And the way that Jesus commanded us to do that is by taking communion. And so I think I, think I would be remiss and I think this message would be incomplete if I didn't point you to those Good Friday services. And so I would encourage you to come out for those. Out there we'll have a chance for those of us who follow Jesus to practice the act of remembrance uh, of communion. And so I would encourage you, maybe you come out with your family, maybe come out with your life group and, uh, and be part of that together. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, I just want to say thank you for the cross and thank you for the deep meaning and significance uh, that it's, it's not just a historical cold fact that something happened, but there's, there's incredible far-reaching implications to it. And uh, Father, I'm just so thankful that the cross tells us that we can trust you, that even when it appears like everything is out of control and even when it appears like it's our greatest moment of defeat, that if we trust you, Father, that we know that there's nothing outside, there's nothing outside of, of even death itself, God, that you can't use for our good and for your glory. And Jesus, thank you for your deep love for us. Thank you for how you endured mockery, how you endured crucifixion, how you endured all of those things when in a, any moment you could have called down angels and changed the circumstance, but you didn't. And you humiliated yourself for our sake that we might go free. And so, Father, I pray that even as we worship and sing, would you help us just to download that, to process that, the deep love that you have for us. And so we ask these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.